I wanted to start this evening by mentioning that a good friend of ours, and I think someone known to many of you, was ordained today as a monk in Burma. And that's Robert Cusick, who has been a manager here on many occasions. In fact, looking over on that side of the room ten days ago, you would have expected to see Robert about where Mary is today. This is also his 60th birthday. So he's being ordained on his 60th birthday with uh, his teacher, who he really loves a lot, named Paok Sayadaw. And when he left, he had the intention that he may be ordaining for the rest of his life. So Robert Cusick is uh, no longer. His new name is Sunyata Gawesika, and it means a seeker of emptiness. So we wish him well. May he find emptiness and uh, make it his home. So as you seek your own emptiness, um, go back into your daily life or from here go into another retreat, you know, I just started to think about what will you take with you from this experience. And a couple of things came to mind. The first is that I hope you will carry the spirit of metta from here back into the world uh, because the world needs it. Number one, because it will make you happy. Number two, and we really hope to create here at Spirit Rock a culture of loving kindness and generosity, a spirit of metta and dana, so that when people walk into the, the meditation hall, walk through the gates, they'll start to feel that's the atmosphere they're entering. And that can be a seed then for taking back into the world. I hope everybody felt that this week. But also, I you know, reflected that life is really unpredictable and changeable. And basically, at any given moment, anything can happen to anyone, any place, any time. This was really apparent last December 26th when the tsunami hit without any warning. A good friend of ours was on the beach in South India, was actually doing Qigong on a beach there, and this huge wave came up and knocked him over, and as he was sort of being washed out to sea, he managed to catch on to the trunk of a tree and then climbed up on a concrete wall and held on as another big wave came in and out and survived by hanging on to the tree. But it was scary. That was one place where non-clinging would not have been appropriate. would not have been liberation that <laughs> resulted. And then uh, just a week ago, you know, hundreds of people were on their way to work in London and the bombs went off in the subway, in, that, uh, in the bus, and out of nowhere, someone could have been injured or killed, uh, huge changes in the life of their family and loved ones. So these things come without warning. A simple visit to a doctor, and one finds that one has a terminal diagnosis. You never know when this might be any of our uh, fate. Well, someone asked a Zen master once a question. They said, what's the value of a lifetime of practice? And the Zen master replied an appropriate response. An appropriate response. When I first heard that story, I thought that was kind of wimpy. I was actually quite disappointed because Zen masters are supposed to say much stronger things than that. They're supposed to say, oh, after a lifetime of practice, you can run me through with a sword and I won't blink an eye. 
Now that's a statement I was looking for, an appropriate response. That sounds very humble. But the more I've reflected on that statement, the more I feel that it embraces the whole of our life and the whole of our practice. Because what is practice than finding the appropriate response to this present moment again and again and again? That is the challenge that practice presents and that is where we establish these qualities of heart and mind of openness, of mindfulness, of wisdom, of loving kindness, of compassion. It's all about how we respond in this new moment. I think one of the great things that the Brahma Viharas give us is a really powerful set of tools for how to respond. It's not that through our meditation we stop any difficulties from coming into our life. Even the Buddha couldn't stop that. People tried to kill him. They um, sicked an enraged elephant on him in a uh, narrow alleyway. Uh, He was poisoned. He faced a schism in the Sangha and a revolt by the bhikkhus. His name was tarnished. He was... His reputation was spread about as a criminal and evil person. He had to deal with all of this uh, difficulty too. But I think what having the tools gives us is a way that we don't have to just feel the passive victim of what happens, but we have ways to work with a situation. We have ways to respond, to help the mind deal with what's happening. And I think this is very empowering. It basically takes us out of a role of passivity and into a role of uh, activity with wisdom. So normally in in life, I think for for most of us, when something painful happens, we tend to get uh, sad or we get angry. When something good happens, we tend to get elated and self-satisfied. And the Buddha said both these responses, both these extremes are not really based in wisdom because they ignore the truth of impermanence. That whatever that condition was, it's eventually going to pass. And in the end, he said, equanimity is a a wiser response. But the Brahma Viharas show us kind of a roadmap of what's possible for the human heart And I'd say even more exactly, what's possible for the awakened heart? We start uh, with this foundation of loving kindness, this generalized caring for everyone. And the world will certainly do many things to test that. The events of the larger society, the actions of political leaders, the actions of our own family members. It's going to be testing our ability to stay open again and again. But I think what the Brahma Viharas say is just because the world is crazy, it doesn't mean that we have to be crazy. And that there's the possibility of staying sane and responding in a sane way even as the world goes through all of its madness. So when we start from the foundation of an open heart, from loving kindness, when suffering arises, there's the possibility of not of overwhelm or grief or despair or anger, there's the possibility of compassion. Not something that comes easily or very quickly, but as we develop that practice, as we incline the mind in that way, it comes more and more easily and naturally. 
when delightful things happen to us, there's the possibility not to cling and get kind of tripped out about them, but to meet them with an appreciative joy. We can appreciate, but we also understand the uh, impermanence of the situation. And when there's nothing particular happening, when the heart can just rest, equanimity can hold all the ups and downs of life. These are our possibilities, as Sally was pointing to last night. On the subject of equanimity, somebody asked in a note after we did that meditation yesterday, well, what about the role of activism in the world? When we say that we accept this moment just as it is, we accept things just as they are, does that mean there's no role for social change, for righting injustices? Not at all. Not at all. Just as in our own meditation practice, what we really start to look at, what we focus on, is how we respond to what is. The same principle applies in the world. In that first moment of the arising of something difficult, of pain, grief, a loss, a fear. We can't change that arising. In Sylvia's words, the present moment could not possibly be any different than the way it is with all its complexity. But we have the choice then of how we meet that moment which creates the next moment of the world. So in our meditation practice, we put a lot of emphasis on responding to this arising, not with conflict, not with greed, not with aversion, because that destroys our peace and plunges us more into suffering. But learning the responses of mindfulness, of patience, of acceptance, of openness, of wisdom, of being willing to learn, and trying again and again to restore the heart to balance, then the action can be appropriate. Same thing in the world. If our partner gets angry at us, if we see the desecration of the environment, if we see oppression of people, of cultures, of whole countries, can we stay somewhat composed within ourselves, accepting what is? And if so, I think that can be a wiser base for action than being all stirred up inside and reacting simply with anger, hatred, frustration, blame, and so on. So I think the same principle applies to action in the world as action in our meditation. Right action can come from a place of balance. Sylvia talked about this retreat. I don't know if you remember because it was years ago now. But she started talking by talking about the Four Noble Truths and the uh, crux of our whole practice being about suffering and the release from suffering. I want to kind of bring that context back because I think that it's important to hold our loving-kindness practice in that broader container and talk about how metta and mindfulness both work uh, toward that container. You know, usually Vipassana is presented as our path to freedom the wisdom path that liberates. And it's said that it can lead to a degree of freedom that is unshakable, complete, permanent, and a very end of suffering. But this isn't often talked about, but in the texts, in the uh, discourses of the Buddha, metta is also described as a deliverance of mind, 
or it could be translated as a deliverance of heart. And the word that's used, uh, ceto vimuti, translated as deliverance of mind, contains the word vimuti, which really means liberation. That the mind is actually liberated when it is in this very, very developed state of loving-kindness. So I want just to look back on our time here and see if we can all get a flavor of when our own hearts have been in that place of liberation over the course of this week. It's not a permanent liberation. It's not an unshakable liberation. But nonetheless, the word applied is liberation. So I want to ask you to reflect back on a time when the three main pieces of your metta practice were sort of all clicking. And the three main pieces are your connection to the person, the phrase was with you, and the feeling, some feeling of metta, of caring, of warmth was there. So just turn in your mind back to some of the sittings or walkings during this week when all three of those experiences kind of came together. And perhaps you were able to sustain it for a little while. 30 seconds, 60 seconds. What was that experience like? Anybody? What was the tone? What was the feeling like of that? Yes? The word that comes to mind for me is bliss. Bliss? Uh huh. Thank you. So openness, wisdom. What else? How else did it feel? Yeah, getting what you were wanting, satisfying, fulfilling, happy. Yeah. What else, Phil? Peaceful. Yeah, the struggle goes out, doesn't it? The conflict goes out. What else? Deep. Yeah, there's a profound quality in the mind that has arrived at that kind of place. It's not an ordinary state. Clear. Clear, yeah. Can see things as they are. Warm and collected. Warm and collected, which kind of combines the metta quality and also the collected mind of composure. Okay, thank you. That's great. Denise? Gratitude and joy. Gratitude and joy. Yeah, lovely. So... All, all of you, I trust, have experienced something of this during the week. And I want you to just appreciate this is not an ordinary state of mind. This is a very, very uh, beautiful and noble way to be. Uh, it's not something that comes upon most people in their everyday life. It's something you put in a lot of work toward and I hope you are, are happy about the fruits. So one of the things that I notice when you all respond, you are all basically describing different aspects, let's say, of the awakened heart and mind. The peace, the clarity, the bliss, composure, the openness, the joy, the happiness. These are different aspects of being free. Freedom has a lot of different flavors. So in looking at that experience, I just want to kind of point out one thing that's extraordinary about it. 
if you have the connection to a person, it may take up the field of images. You know, often it's through an image, at least sensing the presence. Second, when the phrases are going, your thoughts are occupied and other thoughts don't come in. Disturbing thoughts don't really come in. And third, when the meta-feeling is there, disturbing emotions don't really come in. While you're feeling that metta, the accompanying mood is happiness, joy, peace, composure, not anger, guilt, remorse, desire, fear, etc. So see what came together in that moment. The images were stable, the thoughts were of your choosing and wholesome, and the feeling was that beautiful feeling of metta. So in that moment, you had basically put together thought, image, and emotion from your practice. And it was, at that time, under your control. What else is there in the mind? That's it. If you look at mental events, it's basically thought, image, and emotion. And at that time, you had put them all together into this total package that was satisfying, fulfilling, and free. Free because the unwholesome states couldn't intrude. It wasn't just an accidental moment. It was actually composed in that way. So this is why that the developed state of metta is a kind of liberation. We step out of suffering in a very composed way at that time. Now you know how to do that. It doesn't mean you can do it every time. Still, we're... we're grateful or fortunate when they come together like that. Sometimes we just have the phrases. Sometimes we just have the image. Sometimes we just have the feeling. But you know that at times you've experienced that degree of freedom and completeness. That's an extraordinary thing. This mind that is imbued with uh, loving kindness doesn't tend to harm. doesn't tend to harm ourselves. It doesn't tend to harm others. So this is a beautiful contribution to the world. People are safe when we're in a space of loving-kindness. We give that safety to the world. The Buddha talked about this as an act of generosity, that the very ability to be in the world without without harming others is an act of great generosity. Beings feel safe and protected in that space. So it's always interesting to wonder, well, what's the possibility? How far can that non-harming be developed? I've just finished reading this uh, quite charming little book about the Dalai Lama called The Wisdom of Forgiveness. A reporter hangs out with him and travels with him for a couple of months and then writes up the Dalai Lama's life in a more intimate way than uh, we usually get to hear. So at one point, uh, he had seen the Dalai Lama do this confession that Buddhist monks do every two weeks. Every two weeks they sit down with another bhikkhu and confess the ways they've transgressed the rules in the past two weeks. So the reporter asked him, "Uh, did you also make confessions? And uh, the Dalai Lama said, of course I did. The reporter said, what did you confess? The Dalai Lama said, eating biscuits in the evening. said, as a Buddhist monk, I'm not supposed to eat anything after my midday meal. (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice to live for two weeks? (laughs) And that was your greatest transgression? (laughs) 
that's a really non-harming mind. And I also mentioned the other night that uh, Oprah interviewed His Holiness in 2001, and then it, the interview appeared in uh, O Magazine. So this book has a little longer account of the interview. The hour-long interview uh, began well. Oprah started by asking the Dalai Lama, have you ever had to forgive yourself for anything? And Dalai Lama replied, small incidents like accidentally killing an insect. Killing an insect, Oprah said. An insect. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> the Dalai Lama continued, my attitude toward mosquitoes is not very favorable. <laughs> not very peaceful. Bed bugs also. Oprah continued, and that's it? <laughs> Oprah couldn't quite believe what she was hearing. In your lifetime, that's what you have to forgive yourself for? Small mistakes every day, maybe, the Dalai Lama said evenly. But major mistakes, it seems no. No major mistakes, Oprah repeated. <laughs> Mulling over the idea. She fell silent and looked out the window. There was awe in her voice when she finally continued, you have nothing in life that you have regrets about. That's a good life. That's a great life to have no regrets. Regarding service to Tibet, the Dalai Lama said, service to Buddhism, service to humanity, I have done as much as I can. Regarding my own spiritual practice, when I share my experiences with more advanced meditators, even those who have spent years in the mountains practicing single-pointedness of mind, I don't lag too far behind. That's the Dalai Lama, and then here's us. But I figure the only thing that separates us is about 16 lifetimes of practice, so we're, we're getting there. It's also said that the mind that's imbued with loving kindness can't easily be harmed. It doesn't harm others, but it's also said it's not easily harmed. Because it's said that when anger is directed at a mind filled with loving-kindness, it doesn't stick. It's said a mind filled with loving-kindness is so spacious that it's like throwing a bucket of paint through space. And it doesn't adhere anywhere in the space. So not also easy to be harmed with this mind of loving-kindness. We start practicing... Vipassana practice, perhaps we start practicing metta and then we take up Vipassana, and they seem like they're really different tracks. They seem like they're going in kind of opposite directions. One's very receptive, present moment oriented. One's very active, focusing on one particular quality of mind. And we may think that what do these two have to do with each other? But I really trust, and I believe from experience, that they come together in us in what I would call... Uh, kind of a foundation of character that is about having a warm attention. I think what we're trying to develop is a way of being present that's suffused with the warm quality of loving-kindness. Not a way of being present that's just a cold, kind of clinical, detached, scientific observation, 
but one that's really uh, warm toward the arisings of life, inviting, welcoming, uh, receptive. Ajahn Jamnian is a Thai monk who teaches here, and he's an extraordinary being. He has practiced both vipassana and loving-kindness to a lot of depth. And one of the things he says is that he hasn't had anger in 25 years. And when you're around him, he has this joyful quality, and you really can't tell if the lack of anger came from his vipassana practice and deep insight, or if it came from his metta practice and just that his heart is so open. It's, the two have kind of merged in him. And he has this one teaching. He doesn't uh, teach in English. He teaches in Thai with a translator. He has one English teaching that transmits his message. He'll touch the air in front of him and he'll go, empty, empty. And he'll say, happy, happy. (laughs) Empty, empty, happy, happy. That's the whole transmission of his being. That union of emptiness where the mind isn't clouded with preoccupations with past or future and then the natural joy that comes from that. So we, we could say that the Vipassana practice opens up this spaciousness inside us, reveals this great openness that is, that is our basic nature. Our basic nature is open. It's not jammed up or caught or stuck or clung or obstructed. Our basic nature is this great openness. That's what is revealed through insight practice. And then as we develop this heart, that openness takes on, again, not a cold, vacant, absent, blank place, but takes on the warmth of loving-kindness. That becomes a really beautiful place to hang out. (laughs) That's why these states are called the divine abidings. The emptiness brings peace. The metta brings that sense of warmth and uh, inviting inviting this. One of the people who came in for an interview today was talking about the discovery of this combination through the practice this week. And I must say, I'm sure he wouldn't mind my sharing, he began the week rather skeptical. And in the early interviews was uh, expressing a partiality toward Vipassana practice, a little bit of doubt about this practice. And today he said, wow, I've had such great experiences of the metta and the, the composure of mind of that He said, I realize it's just another way home. It's another way to come home. The Dalai Lama put it this way. He said, emptiness makes things soft. Compassion gives them a new shape. That's kind of an unusual way to think of emptiness, but it does soften things. When you realize the world isn't as rigid or fixed or solid as you once thought, your eyes kind of relax and everything can go blurry a little. Or maybe that's age, I'm not sure. (laughs) Emptiness makes it soft. Compassion gives it a new shape or let's say a color or a texture. And that's that warmth. Again, if the Dalai Lama says compassion, we would say metta, more or less uh, interchangeable. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the two qualities of compassion and appreciative joy for a little bit. Compassion, I think, became the the basis in the Mahayana uh, tradition because of the affinity with the Four Noble Truths. 
The Four Noble Truths, the core teaching of the Buddha, are all about suffering and the end of suffering. And compassion is so closely related to suffering. I think that's why it uh, became of so much importance. In the Theravada, we view compassion and mudita as complementary. One relating to difficulty, one relating to pleasure, and metta kind of the envelope that, that includes them both. It's a little different emphasis, that's all. So I think it's a very big question, and one I hope uh, not to be answered intellectual, intellectually, but to be answered by our own investigation. How do we relate to all the suffering that we experience? The suffering in our life, the suffering in the lives of people we know, the suffering that we hear about in the world and read about uh, through the news. How do we relate? And, and it's another way of saying, what is our response to that suffering? I did, um, I may have mentioned this before, I did 10 days of compassion practice on one long Brahma Vihara retreat. As you've done seven days of metta practice, I did 10 days of intensive compassion where I just said the compassion phrase all day long to the range of individuals. I also did 10 days of mudita and 10 days of equanimity. I found the compassion the hardest of all four Brahma Viharas because I was having to touch into suffering all day, every day. With the metta, I could be upbeat about people. With the mudita, I got very happy about people, and the equanimity was just cooling out. But the compassion, I had to keep touching suffering over and over and over again, and there was no, there was no escape for 10 days. So I, I found that difficult. Freud, in constructing his theories of... Um, the human psyche, said that human neurosis is the refusal to suffer. That all our distortions of personality come from our unwillingness to experience directly and accept our own suffering. That's a really powerful statement. might be true. So I started to look at the ways that habitually... I tend to relate to suffering. And I see that it's not an easy thing to be with, and so I've developed a number of defense mechanisms. I might avoid it. I might deny it. I might try to fix it. This is a common male response. If you read (laughs) Venus and Mars stuff, the women are there to empathize. The men want to go in, oh, you got a problem? Let me tell you how to get rid of that. And it would come because of our own uncomfortableness with just being with the suffering. Um, assign blame. Oh, well, somebody did that to me. It's somebody else's fault. Or judge it. Um, I'm wrong for having this suffering. Or someone else is wrong for having their suffering. Or make up a story about it. Well, that's what happens when you do this. Or it's your karma or something like that. So there these... And getting angry. I don't know if I mentioned that one. Getting angry at somebody. These are all ways we defend against just experiencing the basic fact of suffering. Suffering is the proximate cause of compassion. And so in order for compassion to wake up in us, we have to be willing to feel the suffering without turning away or defending against it. This is an interesting place to look. How do we respond when we're in the presence of suffering? When the heart is open and can just be with it without moving into any of these defense mechanisms, 
compassion is the natural response. It is the natural response of the heart. It's not artificial. It's natural. And as we develop that ability, what happens is, this is the way it feels, the heart has to get bigger in order to hold it. So compassion is actually a great practice for making the heart grow. And I see this through my own meditation practice again and again. The more I'm able to open to my own difficulty with real acceptance, not pushing away, but a real acceptance, the more I'm able to open to other people's and the suffering that's in the world. And opening to suffering can change us if we let it. This power of compassion is really transformative. Again, you know, I feel like a kindergartner in working with this stuff. There was a Tibetan uh, lama in the uh, 18th century, uh, sorry, 19th century, named Patrul Rinpoche. And one day uh, every year, in the middle of summer, he would be doing his retreat out in the uh, wilderness in some area of Tibet. And in summer, the forests are blooming and the grasses are up. And of course, there's lots of wildlife that comes out during the summer. So one day every summer, he would take off all his clothes and he would go out into the woods and he would lie down in the forest and stay there all day to let the insects feed on him. And he would walk back into the retreat hut or the monastery at night. His eyes would be all puffed up. He'd have big red welts all over his body. He'd be itching and in pain, could hardly see. That was his compassion for the beings who needed food that day. That's a little beyond me. (laughs) My practice of compassion isn't there yet, but I like to reflect that that's a human potential that someone has. Someone is out there. There's another beautiful story about uh, a king in India who lived a couple of hundred years after the Buddha, King Asoka, who was one of the greatest kings that ever lived in the times. But he started off as a very violent king. He inherited the kingdom from his father. He had expansionist aims, so he went around conquering the other neighboring kingdoms because he had a very strong army, and he took over a lot of land. He became a ruler of a lot of India. And one day after a certain battle, he was standing above the battleground and looking down at the carnage, you know, dead bodies everywhere, dead, wounded people with arrows and spears and various states of being cut up, mutilated. And he was, as he was looking over the scene, suddenly his, his heart responded to it. Not his head of conquer, 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 but he sort of got, what am I doing? And as he was sort of contemplating this and feeling the horror of it, he saw a monk walking across the battlefield. Just a Buddhist monk walking from one part of the country to another happened to cross this scene. And he said the monk was so composed and so peaceful and even radiant in the midst of this horrible, horrible scene that his mind shifted within him. He went to seek teachings he converted to Buddhism. He renounced any war, uh, warring ambitions. He sent envoys to all the neighboring kingdoms and said, I'm not going to try and conquer any longer. I'm giving up this tendency of, of acquisition. He um, 
outlawed animal sacrifices within the kingdom, which was a common Hindu practice at the time. And he turned uh, mostly to vegetarianism in his own kitchen. He also made it a standard policy throughout the kingdom of distributing foods. So essentially poverty was ended within his reign. And this is a teaching that you'll read in uh, the Buddha suttas. The Buddha is asked to comment on what makes a society go bad. He said what makes a society go bad is when there begins to be poverty in the land. And it's the duty of a ruler to ensure that poverty does not happen in a land. Because when poverty grows up, people who are in need will turn to crime to satisfy their needs. So Asoka really ushered in a golden age, not only for India, but also for Buddhism, because he became a a devoted uh, patron of the religion, and Buddhism came to a great flowering under his leadership, all because of this opening of compassion and the sight of a different way to approach it. I think it's uh, helpful to remember that compassion isn't a state of suffering. When we are in touch with suffering and we ourselves fall into suffering, that's considered a near enemy. Sometimes it's described as grief. I'd describe it as overwhelm. That we get overwhelmed by the amount of suffering we're in touch with, and that is a state of suffering. But true compassion can hold that suffering because it's supported by equanimity and doesn't tip uh, into the near enemy. Another way that the near enemy shows up, it's described as pity. And pity is when we're in communication with someone who's in suffering and we feel ourselves uh, kind of by nature above it, better than that, beyond that. It's kind of like, oh, you're so unfortunate, you're suffering but I'm in a great place, I'm not, and it's intrinsically because I'm a better person. That kind of looking down on suffering goes in this tradition by the name of pity, and it's also a near enemy of compassion. The way to cut through the pity, not so much equanimity, it's kind of realizing we could be in the same boat if the uh, circumstances were just turned a little bit. The lovely poem by Naomi Shihab Nye that expresses this. It's called Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness is the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, 
Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. You catch the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. The size of the cloth is everybody, every being. That's the scope for compassion. When things get really overwhelming in the world, it seems to me compassion is the safest place to land. I feel this every time our country goes to war. I mean, I can get roused about that like a lot of us can, can get upset and blaming, but somehow it never seems to do any good for me or the people I talk to. And a safer resting point for me feels to be compassion. I look at the suffering of the people who are in the war. I look at the suffering of the people who are uh, perpetrating the war, who are the victims as well. And compassion is appropriate all around. The next of the Brahma Viharas, of course, is mudita, sometimes translated sympathetic joy. I actually like the translation appreciative joy. And this can be a very happy practice. And I hope you felt some of that in doing the, the mudita practice. Um, the response of the heart to happiness, and taking joy in somebody else's happiness. I got a call from a friend a while ago, and I just said, how are you? And the friend said, I'm wonderful. And just as she said that, my heart just picked up, and without thinking about it, I said, I'm wonderful too. <laughs> of course, part of it is because I was wonderful because she was wonderful. Now, this is the flavor of mudita, and it's a, it's a double hit of happiness. There's the other person's happiness, which is great, and then there's our happiness in response, which is also wonderful. So it's happiness squared. The happiness doesn't necessarily have to be what makes us happy. Last um, fall, when the Boston Red Sox uh, were in, playing in the World Series, uh, one of the cooks on staff here was a guy from Boston, and he wore his Red Sox jacket like every day for a month. <laughs> and then especially after they won, you know, or the first time in 86 years, he was so happy. And I just got a high off of his high. Sally is a horse lover. And um, when we bought this land, we inherited an old quarter horse named Bob. It's a good name for an old quarter horse who used to work this land when it was uh, leased for cattle ranching. So Bob had uh, herded cattle all up and down these hills. And when we bought the property, he was probably 25 and uh, was put out to pasture in that front pasture where you see the horses today. Bob's no longer here. Well, Sally, because of an affinity for horses, sort of took over Bob's care. And in winter mornings, she would go down 7 or 8 in the morning to feed him, and she'd have to break through the ice in the horse trough and tromp through the mud and the muck in that field to bring him his, his hay and his grain. And every time she'd go out, and, you know, she'd dress up in her Wellingtons and her worst clothes, and she'd come back mucked up, I'd think, oh, what a drag. But it, was, it didn't seem like it was a drag for her because she actually loved Bob 
even though he was a cantankerous, old, hard to catch, uncooperative, independent, rebellious spirit. So it may not be what makes us happy, but it may be what makes somebody else happy. And that's, that's the important thing. But it also is a sort of a doorway into our own happiness. And I just think about in an environment like this, there's so many moments every day that bring out that kind of happiness. You know, you walk out in the morning and you see the first sunlight on the hills. You watch a deer go by with the, the babies that still have the spots on them. You walk into the dining room at lunch and you see that incredible spread, that visual feast and the olfactory feast that the cooks have laid out. And then there's always the wonderful feeling of lying down in bed at night after a day of retreat practice. I don't know if there's anything that matches it. <laughs> feels so good. So appreciating all our delights through the day. Sorry? Not to mention seven turkeys. Yeah, seven turkeys. Yeah. The um, term mudita is sometimes translated sympathetic joy, and that's because sometimes our happiness arises in sympathy with others. But under that translation, sometimes we're advised not to focus on our own joy because it's only supposed to be about resonating with others. But I like to call it appreciative joy so that you can also appreciate when your joy arises. When you start to focus on the arising of your joy, part of the flavor that comes through, I think, is gratitude. This is a word that I heard a lot today. People were just expressing their appreciation for the practice, for what they've learned in this week, for the support the, the silence has given them. And gratitude is such a beautiful state to uh, be aware of and even to cultivate. It's so beautiful because it avoids the swings of, of uh, desire and aversion. When you're feeling grateful, you're not in aversion because you're appreciative of what you've got. But you're also not necessarily wanting a lot more because you're appreciating what you've got. So it's really a place of of contentment and, and rest. Practicing in Burma last summer as a monk, I had the opportunity every day to, to feel that gratitude. Burma is one of the poorest countries in the world. I don't know how far down the list it is, but it's way down the list. The military dictatorship has ruined the economy. People are really poor. Yet, a friend asked me to take some money to give to the monastery as a gift, and I thought it would be nice to offer some meals. So when I arrived at the start of the rains retreat, the three-month retreat in the rainy season, I went to the office of the monastery before I ordained and said, I want to offer this money, and I'd like to buy at least one or maybe two lunches. I'd like to feed the whole monastery. The monastery at that time had 750 people staying and something like 400 monks and a couple of hundred nuns. So I'd like to feed the whole monastery lunch with this donation from a friend in the U.S. And they said, oh, I'm sorry. All the lunches are already paid for for the next three months. And mostly it was by Burmese people who just so appreciated the opportunity to support people who were practicing that they had lined up to offer that. And it's not a small amount. I mean, I think a lunch was something like Three hundred fifty or four hundred dollars, and they were all spoken for through the whole three-month retreat. 
So when I'd go down there every day and I'd see these huge piles of food and the name of the donor would be written on the, the board, a whiteboard above the, um, above the tables, I'd just feel this incredible debt of appreciation and the only way I could repay it was being a good monk and practicing well. It was really a beautiful piece of the day. If you feel that you'd like to cultivate this quality of gratitude, I really encourage it. One retreat, I just decided to practice with it. So at the start of the retreat, I took out a sheet of paper and I wrote down everything in my life I was grateful for. And then every morning when I got up, I read that first thing before I went out of the room, before I sat, before I did anything. I'd read my gratitude phrases and it just started me off in such a positive way, such a positive attitude toward the day. We were talking about gratitude in a a class, a senior student class that Sally and I led over a few years. And one of the men in the class had the idea that he'd develop gratitude by doing a practice with a friend. And so what he did is every night before he went to bed, he and the friend agreed they would email each other one thing they were grateful for that day. And so they did that every day. And he really enjoyed it a lot, and it kind of spread in the class. Then a bunch of other people started doing it, and I think uh, Sylvia was doing that for a while. Still are. Yeah. Good practice? Lovely practice. (laughs) So this is a nice, kind of, could be a nice way in uh, to the gratitude practice and the cultivation of joy. So these are the possible responses of the awakened heart or the liberated heart or the peaceful heart to all the changing circumstances of life. Metta is our general approach. Can we approach the whole world with that spirit of kind of trust and openness that we find here, that we develop here? When difficulties come along, can we think about turning to compassion instead of anger or blame or despair? And when the happiness of the world presents itself, can we really tune into it and let our hearts light up? And that all becomes more and more possible as the equanimity of mind, the balance of mind develops. It lets us not feel so disturbed or threatened by the changes of life. So I wanted to come back at the end to this question of appropriate response. The Zen masters reply that the value of a lifetime of practice is an appropriate response. The Dalai Lama is usually pretty good on an appropriate response. So I want to read you a little more of the interview with Oprah (laughs) as it continues. The Dalai Lama had been talking about his meditation practice, and then Oprah asked, would you encourage the rest of the world to meditate? Dalai Lama replied, stupid question. The Dalai Lama's response was as immediate as it was unexpected. He's nothing if not honest. Oprah's face froze. There was a stunned silence in the hotel room. One thought crossed everyone's mind. This was probably the first time anyone had ever said this to Oprah's face. The Dalai Lama grew thoughtful. Should people meditate? I think so. 
he said after a pause. It is worthwhile for the world to look more inward. We are not doing enough here. I'm not saying that people should be religious-minded. What I'm saying is we should focus more on our inner potential. Oh, I believe that, Oprah said, visibly (laughs) relaxing. That's why I asked the stupid question. (laughs) Everyone in the room cracked up. I wanted you to say it, but I certainly believe that. So that was a very gracious response, I think, from Oprah to the Dalai Lama's bluntness. I appreciate both of them as appropriate responses. We should focus more on our inner potential. And I think that's what you all have dedicated this week to. I really appreciate your hard work. And just to say that I believe strongly that this path um, operates on laws of nature just as fixed as the law of gravity. And as that you apply yourself to the path and to these good intentions of the Brahma Viharas and presence and wisdom, that will bear beautiful, uh, beautiful fruit in your life. I just want to close with a reading from uh, the Tibetan version of the four Brahma Viharas. They're called the four immeasurables in that state because they're boundless in that tradition because they're boundless states of mind. So these are the expressions of the Brahma Viharas in Tibetan practice. May all beings have happiness and the cause of happiness, which is virtue. May all beings be free from sorrow and the cause of sorrow, which is non-virtue. May all beings remain unseparated from the sacred happiness, which is free from sorrow. May all beings come to rest in the great equanimity beyond attachment to those near and far. Let's just sit for a moment. May all beings have happiness and the cause of happiness, which is virtue. May all beings be free from sorrow and the cause of sorrow, which is non-virtue. This talk was given by Guy Armstrong at S790 on July 14, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.